This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. Welcome to This Working Life. The office is dead. Long live the office. Over the next few minutes, we're going to take a sneak peek into what workplaces of the future will look like, because right now, while we're tapping away at our keyboards and having meetings, new workplaces are being imagined, designed and built. Think personalised heat zones, quiet work areas and acoustic bubbles, where you can have a private discussion with a colleague or boss and hear each other, but no one else can hear you unlike Maxwell Smart and the Chief's Cone of Silence. Mr Big must be stopped before he goes any further. Now, Max, it seems to me that... Just a minute, Chief. Isn't this top security? Yeah. Well, shouldn't we activate the Cone of Silence? All right, Max. First of all, how much... <laughs> how much do you know about chaos? What did you say, sir? Chaos. <laughs> what? Chaos. <laughs> that brings back so many memories, and I'm hoping that new workplace design isn't like that. Our guide is architect specialising in workplaces, Nicola Gillen. Hello. Hello from London. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on This Working Life. You've just produced a book called Future Office, Next Generation Workplace Design. How would you describe how our workplaces have changed over the last 120 years in terms of the critical changes? Well, what's really fascinating about um, looking back over even longer than that, if we go back to the mid 1700s, there was a a mill that was created as part of the early industrial revolution in Scotland by Robert Owen, who was a very early philanthropist. And he created this work-live community where people worked, educated their kids, went to church, socialized, grew their food, did all kinds of recreation. And also that was the early movement and creation of the eight-hour day, which is Ah. really interesting. He sort of came up with this idea of, you know, workers need to have recreation time as well as work. Um, And what we've seen over then subsequent sort of 200 years through technology and arguably more importantly, styles, we've managed to separate ourselves from our places of work and our places of living, such that we now in many cities have people commuting crazy hours in and out of cities and uh, wasting an awful lot of both personal energy and carbon energy in the process. So, Ironically, that separation that happened is now being radically addressed. So what are the implications then for workplace design and your role in that? Well, I think the first job of all architects and designers in this field is to understand the organisation that they're working with and understanding what they're doing. So, you know, working with um, a group of scientists is very different to working with an ad agency, for example. They do different things. Mm. They use different facilities. So it's understanding what people do and then wrapping a an appropriate physical solution around that. Um, what often gets forgotten, which is 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 still very surprising to me, is the people factors and the technology factors. So you can create the most beautiful environment that you've ever seen, but if you don't have the right technology to make that work, it's a waste of time. Why did you decide to put this book together? 
Well, this book um, uh, was written for the Royal Institute of British Architects who came to us and said, look, we're hearing all of this noise and activity in the world of work and workplace, and we have not created a book uh, to really talk about our position as the RIBA. What they initially wanted us to do was to create a practical design guide for architects that could be applied right now, because a lot of the, the offices of the future, of course, either already exist or they're already on the drawing board because it takes us still such a long time to build these buildings. What's an example knew- of something that you've put in the book, which is a, a practical thing that you could do in workplace design? So connectivity is a key aspect of offices of the future. So that means creating an environment that's going to help people to come together. So that natural collision that serendipitous interaction around things like, you know, good coffee bars, around great ground floors where people feel welcome and open. It's about putting in central accommodation staircases, so open staircases. Yes, in the middle of the office. I I worked in a building which had um, a central staircase that every single person could see, and it's amazing how many people you did bump into because you had to go into this central staircase, which was open. And you've touched on something else that's really important there as a practical example, and that's visual connectivity. So, you know, there is a classic thing where if you can't see people, you don't talk to them. But if you can see across the floor plate or even up and down floor plates, then that enables people to collaborate and communicate much better. Do you have a view on sort of open plan and whether that's been a pro or a con in terms of what's actually been happening in the workplaces? This is such a hot topic (laughs) for a lot of people. Open plan was invented in 1904. So, it is not a new idea. No. <laughs> and, and in fact, it was put together as an annex to a factory. So the psychology behind it was very much about people as an extension to a factory, very much a command and control structure reflecting the factory and the management style at the time. Oh, it's to what watch over so, people. Yeah, exactly. Ah. And what is really fascinating is in all of that time, we are still putting people into rows. It has hung on so well as a concept. Now, of course, open plan doesn't work today because we don't work the same way as we did in 1904. I mean, we just even think about the technological transformation that's happened in that time. So there's very few of us who could do everything we do for our jobs sitting at a desk. We, we, we have video calls, we have voice calls, we collaborate, we need to put things up on walls, we need to spread things out, we need to look over shoulders to talk about what they're doing, you know, on their screens. So it's about creating an environment that matches that variety. Right. I mean, really, you know, in 20 years, I have never designed an open plan office environment. What we do now is we design an open environment, but it's zoned. So you're saying you could have quiet zones and and collaboration zones. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's not just about the activities inside the office, but also about the, the broader things that people would do over the course of their day. So having 
great food offers, having, you know, if, if you're really lucky, great natural environments, maybe great roof gardens where you can go and get outside, maybe where you can go and do some exercise. That whole well-being angle is, is a really big thing in offices. And what was really interesting in terms of writing the book was the opportunity to look across the world at the different workplaces that are being built right now. And one of the really strong emerging themes was around well-being and creating light, bright, fresh environments that are as close to nature as possible and bringing nature in. Um, so there's, there, there are there's an increasing number of studies now around the impact of things like daylight and sleep patterns on people's levels of productivity. There was a frustrating lack of this kind of research up until about five or 10 years ago. Um, but now people are really beginning to get into the impact of environment on people. We're speaking with Nicola Gillen, who's an architect specialising in workplace strategy and design. Um, she's got a new book called The Future Office, Next Generation Workplace Design. You're listening to Lisa Leong on This Working Life. You mentioned something in the book called a circular economy. What's that? Mm-hmm. So it is the opposite of a linear economy where, you know, you create something, you use it, you dispose of it. So in a circular economy, the idea is to create buildings with adaptable components that can be refurbished and reused used over time. Like so sustain- it's, about, it's a sustainability thing. It is completely sustainability, exactly. So it's about disassembly and reuse rather than demolition. And, and what's and an example is, of that? Well, it's happening a lot in the construction industry because it has to, because there is so much waste in the construction industry. So, for example, there's often floor tiles, which are a modular-based system. But what often happens on installation is that very heavy adhesives are used, which means that once they go down, they cannot be lifted very easily. Or if they are lifted, you can't get the adhesive off them in order to reuse them. Yes. So there's new there's new technologies and companies around now that will install these in a much more sustainable way such that they can be reused over time. And there's, there's a great example um, in the book of a place called Park 2020, which is in Amsterdam in Holland. The structure of the building is designed in a modular way such that each can be taken out and switched out for either offices or resident or hotel. So rather than taking the whole building down, they can change the use over time. And they've got great dappled light and green walls on the interior of the building. But what's most interesting about it is that they have what's called a performance-based leasing model, which means that if the occupiers can't demonstrate a certain level of well-being and increased performance, they get money off their rent. Really? And that's yeah, actually happening? which is... <laughs> Pretty, pretty scary for a lot of the construction community to hear that, but it, it's incredibly innovative. So we've looked at the incredible role that digital disruption is playing in the way, and you talk about it a lot as well, in the way we um, work in our offices. Mm-hmm. How have you seen that play out in terms of the design of workplaces of the future? If we are in a world where work can be done anywhere, then what is the role of the office? And the role of the office is about community 
bringing people together face to face. It's about learning and mentoring. So and we've certainly found we've done quite a bit of work around four generations in the workplace, which is, this is now the first time we've ever had that. Mm. And particularly with the younger generations, work is a very social experience for them. So, you know, they come to work to meet other people. They want to heavily socialize with, you know, the activities that are going on outside of the office. They want to get involved in community days and all the activities around, you know, giving back. So we see the increase in social spaces in office buildings. So, for example, another practical tip is around increasingly at least 50% of the space in a building now is collaborative. So, you know, 15, 20 years ago, 80%, 90% of the space would have been rows of desks. Yeah. And what does a collaborative workspace look like? Is that where you have tables in the middle and you're sort of all working on things with post-it notes? It is that. And it's also bars and cafes and Uh, lounges. Yes. um, And a whole range of meeting spaces from open to fully enclosed, from formal to very informal. So it needs to be a whole range of different things that will resonate with, you know, different activities and different people. And and what what's your definition of hot desking then when we're talking about sort of mm-hmm. open plan offices and where does that fit in uh, within your mindset around whether it's good or bad? <laughs> okay. So another real, real emotional topic for a lot of people. And hot desking is again quite an old idea. Well, I guess it was maybe created about 30 years ago, I would say, or more. Um, And it was a concept like a hotel uh, where you would um, come at the front door and you would sit anywhere in the building. And it was very much driven by efficiency. So it's about, you know, how, how little space can we get away with using because we know our people are out and about the whole time. Hot desking is not something that we use with the vast majority of the organizations we work with anymore. Mm. So the, the the more current terms that we would use would be something like agile working or activity-based working, which is also a pretty old concept, but that's around people own a home base with their teams. So say you had a marketing department, they would come to the same part of the building every day, but within their home base, they would have a variety of spaces. So they would have desks and quiet rooms and project areas. So people would not sit at the same desk every day, but they would come to the same part of the building every day. And that enables them to easily meet their colleagues, um, to be able to, you know, easily access their stuff, their files, whatever it might be, um, but also have the benefits of blurred boundaries and sharing and that knowledge sharing between departments. Because certainly this kind of working has shown now, you know, it has it has benefits far beyond efficiency. And in fact, the greater value benefits are those around, you know, the cross-fertilization of ideas and knowledge sharing across departments. And so have you moved on from hot desking because um, there is that feeling of, of feeling quite displaced when you don't really know where you're going to sit in the day? Yeah. And I think one of the other more, much more recent kickbacks on this is around um, the role of personality. So a criticism that um, architects in this field get is that 
we continuously design office buildings for extroverts. We're yes. not all the same. We don't yes. think the same way. We, do, we need more flexibility. So it's about providing, you know, that, that great buzzy space as well as the quiet well, contemplative Can I make space. a comment on that then as an extrovert with a really loud piercing voice that disturbs everyone in the whole floor? <laughs> um, so we mentioned as a joke the kind of silence um, at the beginning of the show. But, you know, in terms of agile workspaces, could something like that work? Well, I think it's going to have to and pretty soon because in terms of the near-term future, we think voice is one of the biggest disruptors that we're going to see in the workplace. So many of us have, you know, Alexa or similar products in our home already. And it in the near term, those are going to be in the workplace. So we're going to find ourselves in largely open environments with everybody talking to their computers. Ah. And what do we do then? So we can already see the rise of headphones, but the idea of acoustic cones, and, and, and this is one of the sort of more futuristic ideas in the book, uh, we talk about instead of people going to meeting rooms, you can imagine a situation where the meeting room would come to the people and we mm. would be able to create this acoustic environment where, you know, it could be around a hood, it could be around a physical hood, it could be around sound masking, where, you know, people are effectively in a sort of cocoon uh, and then it disappears again. Wow. And, and in terms of localised experience, uh, in our workplace today, um, our producer, Verica, was feeling very cold, but we're all feeling really hot. So I'm wondering yeah. whether the workplace can personalise her experience <laughs> so she doesn't feel as, as cold as she did today. Yeah, and that is such a common thing. So one of the other more futuristic aspects that we look at in the book is, is the role of graphene which is a new material, which is um, many, many times stronger than steel. It's going to be a new super material. It's a superconductor. Um, and already there are applications being looked at where graphene can be applied uh, to walls um, in the form of paint, where it will be able to radiate heat and also extract heat from the environment. But we've projected that further again, and we look at a time where graphene will be able to be uh, woven into fabric so that effectively we will be able to wear our own environmental conditions. You can control it. You should be able to control it and personalise it, yeah. So you can make yourself hotter and colder, oh, um, which would be fantastic for all of us, you know. Um, and one of the interesting implications then for office buildings is we may no longer be fitting expensive mechanical and electrical heating and air conditioning into buildings. We may simply be wearing it ourselves. Oh, you have such a fun job, don't you? You get to hear about <laughs> all these things. So thank you so much, Nicola, for coming on the show. No problem. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Nicola Gillen is an architect specialising in workplace design with the engineering consulting firm ACOM. Lisa's Little Tips. Yes, it's tip time. We're talking about recruiting rock stars and retaining top talent with me, Anna Panuzzo, Principal and HR Consultants at Workplace Plus. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me here. Why do we need rock stars in the office? 
Well, what we need is good candidates who are highly skilled and have the best attitude and and the best fit for the organisation. That's easier said than done. So it's all about trying to promote what your culture has, what your your organisation has to offer, and what communication and personality styles you might like this new candidate. So a rock star needs to have all those things. That's very fine. hard to pick in the hiring process. I've tried. What tips do you have for me there? Firstly, you need to know exactly upfront, are you going to be offering full-time, part-time, fixed-term? What is exactly you wanting the candidate or the rock star to do? And then by promoting what you've got to offer as a culture, what are the things you're offering? Great leadership, great communication, great flexible working arrangements, well-being programs, training and development. So you put that in your advertising. I'm getting the vibe here that I need to be a rock star employer in order to attract a rock star candidate. Yes, because you've got to promote that your culture is fantastic, so you want them to join it. But one of the things that I find when you're recruiting rock stars is how do you decipher the difference? And I like the idea of I'm really recruiting for attitude. One of the things is, yes, I'm looking for particular skills, but some skills I can train up attitude I can't. So I need the right personality. I need the right communication style. I need the right attitude. So they fit in with my culture. Attitude. How do I test for that? Not easy. Um, When you do interviews, you do reference checking. I would always advise not to do just one interview. Do, Do one formal interview and then do a second interview. There's a number of different ways, but it's about getting the person to be very comfortable and trying to get them out of their comfort zone so they can be themselves. So you get to see what is their attitude, what are some of the key things, you know, what makes them tick every day. And by attitude, uh, can we tease out what that means? It's being a team member when there's an issue. It's about um, being multi disciplined. Yes, you do have a position description, but you work for an employer. And if there's a need to support or assist, you will. Um, You'll go that extra mile. It's you've committed, you're loyal, you're prepared to assist other, other employees. That's what I mean by attitude. So we've got our potential rock star through the door. Yes. How do I keep them? One of the key things when you keep them is you make sure that you do a really good onboarding program or an induction. Um, You allocate a buddy that could show them, you know, how do things work here? Where do you go to get lunch? When's coffee time? What are some of the different things that happen in the organisation? So you do that. You do an induction onboarding session where you familiarise them with some key stakeholders so they know who the leadership team is, what are the policies and procedures, what are some of the supports. And the other thing is in the first week or two, you sit down and clearly get them to understand what their responsibilities are, what are their tasks, and how are you going to communicate with them and provide them feedback on an ongoing basis. And you get an understanding how the person's feeling, how they're fitting into the organisation, because no one comes in knowing that position description, because you don't always recruit saying that the person knows it all. What you're hoping is that they've got some skills in there that they're going to expand in the role and you're going to um, make them even more employable. I used to be an entertainment lawyer. I did all the contracts for these performers and I found out that rock stars are quite needy, Anna. So I'm wondering, do I need to treat my rock star any differently from my other employees? No, treat them all the same. 
you've got to treat them all the same. Everyone's a rock star. Yeah. Because what happens? Well, what happens is that people then see that you're treating someone differently. You don't want that. You want um, transparency and you want to make sure that everyone's treated the same. But if I am the rock star, maybe a high performer, don't I want you to acknowledge that I am performing at a higher level? Yes, you can. But in my view is that everyone's a good performer. Those who are not performing, you need to really deal with them um, and, and have that discussion about what is that they're not performing. Those who want a lot more and want some key result areas, you might allocate some projects. You might even get them to do some leadership. You might allocate some specific tasks. You need to know who your team is so you can manage them appropriately and give them appropriate projects. But I wouldn't deal with them any differently. Thank you. You're welcome. And that was Anna Panuzzo, Principal and HR Consultant at Workplace Plus. That's the program for this week. If you'd like to hear it again, head to the RM webpage or download the program from the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts from. And on June 11th, we're going to be discussing the second book in our book club. It's called The Art of Learning. It's by chess and martial arts champion Josh Waitzkin. He shares the principle he used to be the best he could be, not just in one career, but two. If you can grab a copy of the book, I'd love for you to read it and send us your thoughts. You can do that by going to our website and clicking on the Contact Us section. Thanks to producer Verika Jokic and technical producer Chrissy Miltiatu. I'm Lisa Leong. Until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.